Marshall Kosloff is here. He is a media fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's one of the most interesting thinkers around these days. And he somehow worked it out so that he hosts two podcasts in which he gets to speak to all the other most interesting thinkers around. The first, The Realignment, which Marshall hosts along with Sagar and Jetty, covers the shifting state of politics, policy, business, and technology during a period of disruption as established industries, institutions, and coalitions fail to adjust to the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century. In the other one, The Deep End, Marshall has in-depth discussions with visionary builders, creators, and experts about world-changing ideas. It's the end of the summer. I, your humble host, Corbin Barthold, am technically on vacation. I was hoping to bring on a guest with whom I can have a more wide-ranging, perhaps even philosophical conversation. Um, And I couldn't be more excited that Marshall is on to have that discussion with me. One specific thing I expect we'll get into is content moderation. I think there's a lot of really dumb rhetoric on the right about tyranny and Orwell and whatnot. I've got into it at length before on the show. Um, And this makes it sort of easy though to fall into caricaturing sort of the entire American rights critique of social media. And Marshall is really thoughtful on this topic and on big tech in general. So I'm hoping he can present the smart person's guide to conservative uh, thinking about social media, if you will. Although, you know, I'm not sure I can say conservative. I'll I'll make sure to let him define his own uh, position before he gets into telling conservatives what they should, should think or do. Anyway, beyond that, I'm just hoping to hear what's on Marshall's mind. Uh, So we'll see where it goes. Marshall, welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, Before we get into tech, I wanna start at a slightly higher level uh, with the realignment. You started your podcast on that topic, I believe in summer of 2019. Um, And I think you were really on the cutting edge in spotting that concept that something deep is shifting. And it's a phenomenon that since you started that podcast, I've seen described from so many different angles. Lots of people are seeing this. Uh, Michael Lynn talks about the growing divide between what he calls managerial elites and everyone else. Uh, Ross Douthat talks, I think slightly tongue in cheek about how the right is now the party of Michel Foucault and postmodern ideology. Uh, Kevin Williamson, says that the god Dionysus has shifted allegiance from the Democrats to the Republicans. I really like that one. Um, I could go on. Anyway, how do you think about the realignment? And what does that term mean to you? And what insights into it have you gained from you know, doing your podcast? Yeah, that's a really, really great way of setting things up. And what I actually really appreciate about how you run this show is I think you've done the best job of anyone who's interviewed me of looking at the specific arcs of my career and the narratives I'm engaging with, because there's a surface level version of that, which I want to dispel in two seconds, but there's a deeper one that I actually want to get into during this episode, because that's actually a really big opportunity for the two of us to discuss. I think where we resonate with a lot of listeners. So to a couple of different things you said, so number one, you referenced the word conservative. 
I have no interest in being labeled conservative on a couple of different levels. A, to this idea of a political realignment, the term conservative is shifting right now. It, it doesn't mean the same things that it meant last week. It definitely doesn't mean the same things it meant 10 years ago. So when we try to label people during periods of transition, it actually ends up obscuring more, but it actually ends up revealing. Um, I don't want to make a really lame point of labels are always bad and I hate labels and don't label me. That's not what I'm saying. Labels are actually very useful. And there are some issues where labels are actually particularly helpful, especially when it comes to sociocultural issues. So it's not that I'm making a case against labels. What I'm saying is there are very specific areas, whether it's tech policy, economic policy, debates over the role of the state and the market, we're trying to say, Marshall is conservative or Marshall is centrist or someone is progressive or center left is actually not going to be very helpful actually thinking about these things. And it often leads to some of the most annoying discourse you see on these topics where someone says, especially people on the left, which I actually get a huge chance to speak with on my podcast, they say things like, wait a second, Governor Ron DeSantis is trying to use the state to attack speech. That's not conservative. That's big government. Well, that's not conservative in the sense that conservatism is this 1990s ideology, but conservatism, like any ideology, is in a moment of flux right now. So it's actually very legitimate to call yourself conservative and take some positions on big tech that you and I and your listeners will disagree with, but it's really not helpful to try to play the game of, well, that's not the conservative thing to do. Because my general metric by thinking about this is, if we look at most people in this country who identify as conservative, I would actually bet they are closer to the position that a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump is taking than the position of a more traditional conservative fusionist libertarian. So we should basically go with the majoritarian position on those issues. So that's just the real thing I really want to note here, which is that my whole body of work revolves around this idea that all these titles and labels really focusing on these set of issues are really under shift right now. So what I am trying to do and why I don't want to think of myself as a labeled person, I don't want to think of myself as partisan, is I'm just trying to help people, whether they're left, right, center, anarchist, Marxist, I won't really say fascist because I don't really want to work people talk with fascists. Let's put them to the side for a second. I want to help people actually understand the world better because the more you look into the way people are thinking about these things in a moment of transition, the weaker you're actually seeing their frameworks are separate from the actual things they actually want. That's such a, a great answer. I almost have truck with the word conservative itself. It's almost like, so the word liberal got sort of wrecked decades and decades ago, because when I hear liberal, I still I want it to mean like classical liberal. That's what it originally meant, you know, going back into the 19th century. And eventually it came to mean more of a, a left wing progressivism. And I think now we're finally having that happen with conservatism. I mean, I guess you could argue that it happened a long time ago and there's there's different threads. But like when I hear the word conservative, I think of like Lord Salisbury in like the 19th century, like moderation and Burkean slow movement and and maintain the system. I mean, conserve, it's right there in the word. And so my brain always gets a little discombobulated when that that particular label is used now, because conservatism now uh I think of almost the, to get back to the Dionysian point, it's, it's like fight the system and sort of almost anarchy because with the conservative movement basically having gotten itself kicked out or lost power, however you want to put it, of every major institution, 
media, universities, the professions, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, urban centers, like that's an intimidating list to be excluded from. Um, it's kind of making that whole movement, uh, I shouldn't say whole movement, big parts of that movement basically lose their minds. And my approach has very much been in my own writing and, and, and like every person, every movement, every religion, whatever has to stand on its own two feet. And I spend most of my time acknowledging that like, I don't really have any credibility with the left. Like I can't be like wagging my finger at them and they're gonna listen to me to the extent that anybody will ever listen to me and nobody, maybe nobody does. But uh, I, I can look at the right and be like, look, I, I am kind of with you and, and I'm sad about what you've done. I kind of end up in sort of like the bulwark camp to give a really shorthand. Um, but having said all of that, yeah, there is a degree that like a, a healthy liberal democracy needs two parties and anybody who doesn't acknowledge that, um, is a bit of a fanatic. And so even if you're on the left, you should have a sort of pragmatic view that it's problematic that the right is so like crushed in terms of the mainstream culture that it's driving them kind of nuts. I'm really, I'm really, really glad that you set things up this way because I was just on Clubhouse last night and I was having a bit of a debate with a person who left the Republican Party, really great host, really great room. It's politics and media 101. So I want to shout that out. But he was making the point that the right is losing its mind and the right's focusing on all these fake issues like the debate over CRT and all these different sociocultural culture war issues. Masks. And my pushback, masks, all these things. And my pushback is. No, you're actually kind of missing the point because the point of the CRT debate, it's like you just set up. The point of the CRT debate isn't literally there's this academic theory that came out of the universities in the 1970s. And if you actually ask most Democrats or actually most school board members, they obviously don't subscribe to the letter of what CRT actually is. That's not what the debate is. And to spend the time as if that's the debate actually misses the point. What those debates are actually about is that conservative voters like you said, do not feel like they have any buy-in to any institutions. I think it's actually about the fact that, you know, during the 1619 Project controversy with the New York Times, it emerged. And once again, I think this is entirely not an insane thing to have happen, but the 1619 Project produced a curriculum um, that was propagated and adopted through various states and school boards. And if you're someone on the right, you can recognize there's absolutely no world where the Wall Street Journal or National Review, or The Bulwark, or Breitbart, or basically the entire gamut of conservative to libertarian institutions are capable of creating curriculums that will be adopted in most states in this country. There just really is this disparity in ability to wield power and have your viewpoint be propagated in the public sphere today. So that's what these debates are actually usually about. If we're looking at the content moderation debate, I'm in this really weird state where I really hate the way the right talks about content moderation at a very literal level, because if you actually look at what people are literally saying, they're making this weird claim that platforms should not have the ability to, to a certain degree, moderate the way they want things to do. And I really say to people, think about that in any other context, that would be kind of insane. 
look at a club or your house or any of these various institutions, it's not crazy that private things could to a certain degree set terms of the spaces they're in. So I push back when people mix up the rhetoric and they make these claims of Facebook being the public sphere and Facebook being a monopoly, which I totally disagree with, but that's the superficial level. I like taking a step further in and recognizing what is really being said right now. Because what is really being said right now is people on the right are actually ticked off over the fact that if you actually look at people doing the social moderation, nine times out of 10, they're center left, professional managerial, top tier graduate, top tier graduates of these countries, top schools who tend to be located in certain parts of the country. So that what that is what this is actually about. And too many people who are skeptical of right populism are not able to take a step back beyond the surface level, oftentimes ridiculous rhetoric, and actually look at the issue at hand. And the last thing I was saying with this, part of the reason why the top level rhetoric is ridiculous, part of the reason why Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO, will launch a social media platform, which is supposed to be the opposite of Facebook and Twitter. Yet, if you actually look at the terms of service, is far more restrictionist on free speech than either of these platforms. The reason why he's doing that, it's easy just to dunk on him because it's obviously stupid. But the reason why it's actually happening is the right doesn't actually have a useful conception of what platforms are, of what speech is, what the public square is, and how that should actually operate. When Mike Lindell creates an alternate social media platform that is incredibly right-wing, but's incredibly socially conservative, he's not actually arguing that he wants more free speech. He's not actually arguing that platforms should be entirely content neutral. Basically, no one actually wants content neutral platforms. He is just arguing that there are not enough platforms that people who are right of center control right now. And that's a problem in our society. And that is something that on a deeper level, I doubt he would give that articulate of, arti- of a framing of that. But that is something I could, dis- I could agree with. And I think it's really dangerous to focus on the stupid side of what he's doing and miss the deeper implicit thing that's going on right now. Okay, so great. And let me take that great answer and and kind of key it into a bit of my frustration. So I like to joke that at this moment in my life, like where I feel sort of ideologically homeless, um, I am like a fanatical moderate. I'm like a fanatic for moderation. Like I'm uh, intensely alienated by both sides. And so I, that can key me into the, re, the realignment here because I am, I am part of that realignment in some way that I, as yet, even I am not quite clear what it means for me. I'm kind of up for grabs maybe would be a way to put it. And I find myself in my work, and I honestly believe the things I do, don't get me wrong, um, taking mm-hmm. positions that the left likes because the left is having this weird moment where they're like defending uh, corporations on say content moderation. And, uh, you know, you get applause from these people you never expected to applaud you. And, but I, I realized that things are shifting. They are realigning. And one day I could end up not, you know, I could have positions that these people discover I'm not their friend on a lot of things. And to give a preview of that, it's like, I look over at the right and it's not that I have some deep seated lifelong abiding disdain for right wing views. It's more that I look at the conservative movement. And I just feel, I just, uh, when I look at it, I go, oh my goodness, get your act together. Do something coherent. Stop just the angry, aimless, lashing out 
uh, dare I say, childish populism. Um, and so where, you know, where do you see this going? Where, when you say the realignment, what do you see things realigning toward? Because right now I see the angry populism seeping in and sort of infecting the brain of respectable conservatism. I actually wrote an article in the Bulwark on um, Judge Silberman's concurrence uh, raging against the media and social media and kind of talk. And I respect Judge Silberman. He's a great judge. Don't get me wrong. But like on this particular issue, and I've seen this in other places with personal relations of mine, where it's actually the respectable highbrow conservatives starting to sound like John Birch society people. It's like the, 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 the populist side, the, the worst instincts of the populist side is in, you know, gaining on the respectable right and not the other way around. So just to, to bring it back, like, where do you see things realigning toward? Yeah. Uh, I want to give, this is very, very complicated. So by the way, please interrupt me to get any clarifications or anything like that, because I have to give three or four different answers to what you're saying. So let's just start with- You could write a book on that question. So yes, please yeah. go so, ahead. So yeah, so please, 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 seriously, please, please interrupt and redirect and do anything like that. So here's part one. And this goes to what we're really trying to do on the show now. Actually, let me, let me, let me take a step back and let me say something about what I actually am trying to do on the show now, because when the show started, we Sagar and I were very much in the camp of there's this realignment on the right. Holy crap. Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are saying things like let's raise taxes on the wealthy. We don't like corporations. Unlike Jeb Bush, we're going to defend social security. We are going to align the Republican party much closer to the actual policy beliefs of base voters in the party. They exploited the fact that George W. Bush, after his second inauguration, mistakenly decided to attempt to privatize Social Security and was shocked at the complete backlash against that across the aisle. So in a certain way, put aside everything really noxious about Trump, there was something really exciting about that moment from 2015 to 2018, because there's this underlying idea of, holy crap, we could actually have a political system that's actually more rational, where there could actually be points of agreement and we can move on. Let's no longer have this 20th century debate about the role of government. Now, this isn't a debate that will make libertarians happy, mind you, but let's actually just come to some type of agreement on the nature of the welfare state and just move on to new topics. That all basically didn't happen. Um, it didn't happen because what happened is that the right discovered, especially at a political level, that given the dynamics we're talking about around power and institutions, lack of trust, the fact that there's this whole percentage of the population that feels completely cut out of society, we could obviously add to that the whole discourse around America becoming a majority minority country in 30 or 40 years. I tend to be reluctant to bring that up because oftentimes it's basically just used as a dismissive point to suggest that all this basic stuff comes down to is anxiety over an inevitable policy and political result. Therefore, there's nothing we can do. 
because obviously that and the various amounts of white identity politics that come up are a huge part of everything that's happening right now. But it totally excludes the part that you've really keyed into, which is, wait, like you could have a majority minority country, but still have people who are right of center feeling as if they have access to the institutions that actually control power in this country. And that is actually part of what, partially what explains why you're seeing people on the right become increasingly anti-military in a way that's really disturbing if you look at it just in terms of our military is full of CRT, General Miley and all these people are just woke. That's happening because you're seeing this other institution that people on the right thought was theirs actually have it revealed that at least at the general staff level is actually much more in line with the traditional PMC, they see themselves in opposition at tech companies, other places, you know, General Miley, you know, went to an Ivy League school. That's this big division we're seeing around the country. So to your actual question, what we saw here is Republicans discovered and conservatives discovered that they did not have to be economically populist in order to win elections, in order to advance this project of fighting back against what they see as the broad center or the broad left. So you didn't have to raise taxes on the wealthy. Actually, you could cut taxes um, as the Trump administration supported through Congress in 2017. Actually, you don't have to um, work to increase entitlement spending. You can actually stay pretty much where Jeb would have been. You could appoint Betsy DeVos to be your education secretary. While at the same time, you can be incredibly populist on the culture issues. So as long as you have a social media summit where you rage against Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, you don't have to deliver on the econ policy side, which is why you haven't actually seen a realignment to that degree. So ever since that thesis we had there was completely just eviscerated by an alternate method of propagating and achieving power, I've just ditched myself as a person is telling people, here's what you should decide and here's what you should think about. Because I just think it's very clear right now that I, like you, don't have a high amount of confidence in my exact ability to prescribe, here's what should happen. That being said, to the other part of your question, I am really obsessed with, and I think this is a good framework for understanding how I think about this realignment moment with this question that was posed to General David Petraeus during the surge in Iraq. It seems like a total tangent, but it actually relates, um, which is he shows up in Iraq, the war is going terribly, you, you know, you're in the middle of like the real heights of the Iraqi civil war where the government is effectively an enemy of a huge percentage of the Iraqi population. And a reporter just asks him, General Petraeus, like, just tell me how this ends. Right, just like how is this situation that we are sitting in that feels so awful? How is this going to end up in a place that we're actually happy? And I think it is such a great question. I need to actually know what General Petraeus's answer is, but I'm I'm just I actually don't know his answer, but I'm just obsessed with the question. And I think it's a question that should be asked to any politician or thinker right now who either claims they have answers to our problems or is attempting to wield power in our situation. Because I think what you are resoundingly seeing is across the board, especially on the right populist side, you do not have politicians who are incentivized to develop a question of the long-term of, wait, how is this ideology you're pushing forward? How does this fighting back against the center and the left, how does this actually end up with a world where 50 plus one of your constituents are actually happy. Because that isn't, isn't, what, isn't what's happening right now. Um, I don't see at all how the failure to reckon with the fact that less than half of the country agrees with the right populist view of how tech policy should be regulated 
there's no actual answer to this. I, I have yet to see, you know, and what's, uh, I'll throw this back to you because this is my favorite talking point that I love just destroying because it really shows a large degree of media laziness is I hate when people say there's this bipartisan coalition against big tech. Everyone in big tech should be afraid. I always say that's ridiculous because if you actually look at the actual critiques that both sides are making in many spaces, these critiques are fundamentally in opposition to one another. So if you look at what Amy Klobuchar is saying, she's writing a book on antitrust and her whole claim is that Facebook is bad because Facebook doesn't moderate enough content. And there's actually too much disinformation. If you actually listen to her interviews, you will hear someone who at every single level beyond this statement about Mark Zuckerberg having too much power is in complete opposition to what Josh Hawley, Iran DeSantis and other people are actually saying. So once again, if we're getting to what I am trying to have people actually figure out, I wish I could get all of the antitrust people in the room who are saying, hey, we are recognizing this societal point that we are skeptical of Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and their power. Can you all sit down and give me an articulation of what you're actually proposing that could actually lead to something, whether or not I agree with any of those things? Because you just look at those two camps and it's very clear it doesn't actually lead to anything. And when you got to this into, uh, into your intro email, but you actually look at these critiques and you realize, hey, wait a second, Senator Hawley, if you broke up YouTube from, from Google, given what you're articulating is the problem of free speech online, actually that wouldn't address any of your concerns. The last real bit I really want to highlight here is um, I work at a tech company called OnDeck. So take what I'm saying from the perspective of not being a tech shell. Uh, but what's been fascinating about actually working in the private sector while still being really deep in this, in this, into this um, tech policy stuff is you really just realize a lot of the rhetoric in DC right now around competitiveness and the way Silicon Valley works is just three to four years out of date. So you'll get comments. Yeah, please. Always. Please. Always. Please, yeah. That's yeah. like a that's like a truth of Washington politics when it looks at any industry, in my opinion. But go ahead. But here's the key thing. Cause I want to push back against the always point because I think making the always point could because I think once again, the thing that's cool, what I do is I speak to like 15 different audiences at once. Um, you said I host two podcasts, I actually host three podcasts. I host a podcast at Hudson Institute called Counterbalance, where I just do foreign policy. So I, I actually think I'm 29 years old. I probably think you know, I was joking, I do three to five podcasts a week, not counting this one. I probably talk to more people than anyone else in my generational cohort. So I get good at thinking about, okay, how does one side think of what you just say? So when you say something like government is always behind where industries are, I can just put on my center left hat and say, okay, like the problem with that statement is it makes it seem like government could never regulate or can never do anything because it's always out of date. I don't want to, I, I want to say I probably disagree with you on that issue, but I want to focus on the tech point that I'm making here about 2021, sure, sure. which is that if you look at um, something Senator Hawley said on the podcast episode I had with him, he was talking about how um, Google's monopoly with YouTube is a problem because YouTube just controls all this children's content. No one wants to fund or launch a more child-friendly alternative to Google, to YouTube, because they just don't want to compete against the Google narrative. 
And I'm just thinking, I'm like, Senator Hawley, I didn't say this because once again, with politicians, you have to be kind of polite. It's not really an adversarial interview. I don't really want to do those interviews anymore because it's not actually that useful or that fun for anyone involved. I'm like, wait, Senator Hawley, that's like 12 streaming services right now. Quibi just ra- like dunk on Quibi all you want, but Quibi raised $1.1 billion. It is just not true if you look at the funding cycle of the Sil- of Silicon Valley right now that no one is going to launch a streaming alternative to YouTube kids. That's just literally not true. And actually, if anything, given the fact that there are all these different streaming services, the ability to create children's content is actually a good example of something which is a huge differentiator. So there's just this huge gap between what we are using rhetorically and what I really think is happening is people are importing rhetoric from 2017, which I think it's pretty fair to argue at 2017, we were sort of getting to the end of a really specific period in Silicon Valley, right? So we're getting to the end of the web 3.0, software is eating the world, Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram or everything. So people could look at the kind of I don't want to say that nothing was happening, but I think that people could look at how calm the funding space was in these different areas. And then they're importing that to the year 2021. So they're saying things like, oh yeah, like Facebook is a total monopoly. And the fa- my favorite, I, I, I did a great, and seriously, I will stop ranting, but you, you've asked me just my favorite topics. I, uh, I had an episode with a, a podcaster named Kinsey Grant, who, who's really smart and her co-host, Josh Kaplan, they're media entrepreneurs. And Kinsey said, hey, you know, Facebook's a monopoly. I said, okay, Kinsey, here's a good way to think about this. Facebook has just unveiled this massive initiative to get podcast creators like us on Facebook to use their tools. I said, is anyone here, my co-host soccer included, using these tools? And we all said, no. I'm like, okay, if, if we're not using these tools, it actually suggests there are alternatives that exist. And there's a reason why we're not just using Facebook. Because if Facebook were a monopoly, and as content creators, all we actually care about is getting our stuff out there. From my perspective, we would be hopping on Facebook to have to use it, but we're not. So is this a monopoly in the year 2021? I just don't see it. But yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my long, um, not particularly coherent, but I think heartfelt attempt to make sense of what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. So much good stuff there. So first, to go back about four or five things you're saying, I just want to tie up the realignment point and, and just say... Um, when I look at um, Trump-aligned people that I know personally, um, I've long told them, you know, look, Trump ultimately is not your friend. He he wants his approach is to burn it all down. There is there's no program there. It's basically uh, if you feel spite toward the whole system, he's your man, and and ultimately that just doesn't end well. And I, I firmly believe that until uh, the Republican Party moves past that stage, somehow um, we're going to continue in this sort of angry uh, lashing out um, circle. And, but then I turn around and I look at, say, like I'll pick on Sheldon Whitehouse and the way he like rages against the Supreme Court. And there's this sort of underlying like conservatives, like how dare you have any control over like one institution that that cannot stand and i'm like you realize that you're going to you're the one driving this insanity like you're 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 part of the problem you need to understand that and so i just wanted to throw that thought out there on the on the realignment point as to like what ends up getting people like me who are like rabid moderates at this point 
Um, but moving on into sort of more tech-oriented stuff. Yeah, yeah, that that's fair. That's fair. My knee-jerk reaction is they're always behind. Maybe it's because I work um, almost entirely in tech policy. And so like, I'm focused on the tech industry. It's not like I know... I, I can't speak to like what's going on in the pharmaceutical industry. So you, your point taken, but within the tech world, um, I think you do, I've seen you sort of express views that are pretty in agreement with that point. Even if we don't say all, if we say often, you know, I, I, I heard you make the point, I believe it was on your episode with uh, Cecilia Kang and Shira Frankel when you had them on to talk about their book, an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination. And um, I think it's fair to say that, they basically attack Facebook from the left mm -hmm. and you were really good at being devil's advocate to them. Um, and, uh, with various points, but in this context uh, at the moment, I'll focus in on, you said something to the effect of, you know, wasn't the moment for antitrust action against Facebook, if there ever was one like three or four years ago when they still had like cultural cachet and remember for like 10 minutes, there were these whispers that Mark Zuckerberg was like lining up a presidential bid, like, Oh my God, does that seem, uh, <laughs> quaint now, but you were, yeah. So you were, you were saying a lot of the points you've already hit on that, uh, you know, why do we, why do we rage against Facebook when they're not really, they're not on the cutting edge of hipness anymore necessarily. And um, you were making the point that it, it's kind of simplistic to act like they could have just booted Trump years before they did. He's a world they couldn't player. have. Yeah, they yeah, are, yeah. I, I hate when liberals say this. So I just label people, but I hate when people say that. That's ridiculous. So like, you you get this is OK. So I'll tie it in and, and create a yeah. question out of this, because. Quick aside, I love your podcast, Amir. You're just, you're very composed. You're very in control. You're very calm, cool, collected. I really just, I like listening to you. You've got that, you've got a radio uh, air about you, no pun intended. But I, I saw you get passionate just right there. And then I saw you get passionate in the other direction uh, when um, somebody brought up the, oh, but Ben Shapiro does well on Facebook point. And... Uh, and therefore, we don't have to worry about uh, the, the social media companies. They're not biased. So let me just open it up and, and really get us into sort of firmly in tech world and ask you to talk about um, social media content moderation. So I've just um, discussed how if you have two people attacking Facebook from the left on your show, you tend to push back at them. If somebody brings up uh, the, the, you know, Seb Gorka's still on Twitter and doing well argument. You push back against that. Um, so could you just expound on, uh, let's, let me line up a, just a couple ones. Like, is, do you think that there is content moderation bias? Do you think it is worth Republicans expending energy on it, even if there is, we've already touched on what my personal view is, which is that it's kind of a cheap cop-out that allows them to align rhetorically around an issue instead of like actually dealing with real world problems. And, uh, you know, to we've been through how, you know, you're not a conservative, that's not the right label, but like, if you wanna be a consultant, say, for the conservative side, what do you think they should do? What do you think their approach to social media should actually be? Yeah, so let's tie this together. So the reason why I get passionate on those specific topics are 
those gen- and once again, I like I like Cecilia and Shira. It was a really good episode. I really appreciate how they took the pushback. But the reason why I get so passionate about pushing back against them is everything they were saying was in complete violation of everything I believe that being a successful politician or a host or just someone who's trying to help people understand the world need to think about. So when we were talking about content moderation, Cecilia and Shira brought up the fact that former Arizona Senator John Kyle had did an audit of Facebook and determined that there wasn't an issue. And I got really passionate about that. I was like, who cares what Senator John Kyle thinks? The whole point of the 2016 election and the whole point of this broader post-Watergate, it's conventional wisdom, but it's true, total lack of interest in what any big institutions or big figures said. The whole point of that is that I don't care what any senator says. I don't care if you take Al Gore and have Al Gore say this, this, or that. I don't care if you have Barack Obama having him say this, this, or that. No one cares what anyone says. Like John Kyle, a establishment Republican politician, is not the arbiter of what any Republicans or conservatives are supposed to feel about Facebook. And it's insane that they actually thought the proper response was, but Marshall, how could there be platform bias? Facebook found this 80 year old Senator who no one cares about to claim everything was fine. That's like on the face of it it makes absolutely no sense. It's like, it's, it's, and and it's just, sort and it really just shows that the two of them are very, very smart, but it just shows that they are just so stuck in their bubble but they are just not thinking about how to actually think about any of these issues. Um, think of think of environmental politics. Um, imagine, does anyone on the left, say like the AOC Sunrise Movement people, the people who most care about climate change, let's say you had an oil company or a car company. What if a some form of carbon emitting uh, institution or company hired Al Gore Actually, not even Al Gore, because he's not very famous. What if they hired Bill Bradley? What's, um, you know, Bill Bradley, former senator from New Jersey, was a Rhodes Scholar, Princeton basketball player, was in the NBA, hasn't been in office for decades. And they said, hey, good news, everyone. Our carbon emitting industry is actually super chill because Senator Bill Bradley says that's chill. Obviously, that wouldn't work. Because like that's a ridiculous style of politics and public affairs. And the fact they thought they could get away with that is frankly, I think a perfect demonstration of the problem here. Um, so I just think that like the two of them and people on the left in general need to get much better at understanding what people are actually saying, how you should actually speak to people. Because in no other context would they have gotten away with such sloppy thinking. Okay, so then to the um, Facebook and Ben Shapiro point, which is also ridiculous because well, hmm, interesting. It's 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 not ridiculous. It's it's interesting. It's it's surface level. Then there's a the level deeper. So here's the surface level. The surface level point is: look, it is not actually true that. Okay, this is actually good. Um, I'm arguing against myself, but this is what I always do. The important point that people on the right should take, and I get really frustrated about, is I think 99.9 percent of conservative-leaning people on social media are totally fine. You are not going to get censored. Uh, I think it's really ridiculous where people make this claim. Um, you know, I, I have 
familial acquaintances with their 300 Twitter followers who are deeply afraid that Jack Dorsey is going to go after them. And it's like really dumb that Republican politicians and media figures have gaslit them into thinking that anyone cares about their sub 300 follower tweets. If I may cut in, I have relatives who are not on Twitter and not on Facebook wouldn't know, wouldn't recognize a Twitter feed if you showed it to them who are passionate about this issue. To, yeah. To, yeah, go ahead. No, so no, so that's it. So it, it's, it's, it's the frustrating situation where people create the problem they claim they're attempting to fight. So if you obviously go around telling everyone on the right that Jack Dorsey and big tech are coming after them, that's obviously going to create this bigger issue. So I think that's an important point to know. And the fact that Ben Shapiro succeeds on Facebook and that actually, if you look at most of the top performing content, it tends to be center right to conservative, that should tell you something. And it should really push back against the superficial critique that anything the right does on social media is going to get dunked on and destroyed because that is not true because we have to get deeper and look at the part of the part that's really dumb here um i am not and i need to be very 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 precise um it, this isn't clear from my from my um last name um but to any listeners like i'm i'm black um i'm adopted it's why kozlov is my last name um tldr there but i am not meaning to compare tech censorship to racial justice issues so i want to be very precise when i say this it frustrates me that people on the center left can recognize the idea of structural bias in one context, aka racial justice, but can't understand the very straightforward fact of structural bias in the tech context. So yes, it's true that Ben Shapiro dominates on Facebook, but frankly, that's because the type of content that Ben Shapiro creates and the type of audience demand that you have, aka people who are anti-establishment, people who aren't satisfied with the status quo, that is an audience that naturally is going to migrate to Facebook. That's the key thing. There's a real, the reason why conservative media dominates on social media platforms is because that's where the audience is. And that's where there's a specific ideology to be very interested in that. It's the same reason that talk radio before the internet was dominated by the right. Because when you have ABC, CBS, NBC, there aren't a hundred channels on the cable box. If you're conservative, you are not being served by Walter Cronkite. So if you create alternatives, obviously those alternatives are going to be dominated by people who are looking for something outside of the mainstream. So I think everyone agrees that the big three in news media pre-1990s were all center-left to center at best. No one thinks that's crazy. But it would be absolutely insane to me for someone to say, oh my gosh, look at this. Talk radio is dominated by the right. Therefore, there isn't this big problem with the big three media networks not really speaking to those people. So that's the problem we have with Facebook. And then the second level, and this also applies to the thing I was saying about Senator um, Kyle of, of Arizona, is that if you're on the right, let me just put on a conservative hat, like I don't give a damn what, how Ben Shapiro does on Facebook, right? Think about what I'm saying for a second, right? Like, do you think, do you think if you actually polled right populist conservative voters, any of them care how Ben Shapiro is making tens of millions of dollars off of his YouTube and podcast content? No. They don't care about Ben Shapiro. They care about the fact that they don't feel as if they have the ability to use social platforms the right way. So this is another example where people are failing to actually look at what's actually being said. 
all of these social issues debates, except for abortion. So let's put that to abortion, LGBTQ, let's just put those two aside for a second. So all of these like realignment era social debates, masking, um, uh, you know, CRT in schools, content moderation within those three, I think they're better understood as being about power. No one cares on the right that a rich dude who can move the whole studio from LA, from Tennessee, from LA to Tennessee is successful. They care that they do not feel like they have power in the public square. Now, and this is why everything you're saying is very important. I am not claiming the solution to our political system is just give power to Trump in order to make people be heard. The most frustrating instinct you basically see um, from, let's just say, um, cynical to cowed politicians who are very sort of discombobulated by our moment here is they basically think their job is just to say, look, people on the right, they need to be heard. So let's come up with these like ridiculous social media policies. Too many people on the right do that. That is not what I'm calling for. Instead, because um, the last thing I'll really add here, I want to get to something you said about moderation and centrism. And my biggest problem with previous forms of moderation and centrism, and really why I think they're kind of cringe and why I would never identify them until now, is that they claim to be moderate and centrist, to be unbiased and to really be right in the middle when actually they aren't, right? Like you can't look at what Thomas Friedman, Thomas Friedman is someone who codes as centrist, especially in the 2000s, but his policies aren't centrist. He's center left operationally, though the way he portrays himself, the way he acts, there's a way he speaks. But he added like a very discernible viewpoint. His beliefs on globalization, A, were center left, but really pushed things in a very specific depth, in a very specific direction. So what I think the real centrist moderate project, and it's one that I think that people, frankly, in the center are best actually equipped to do, is one where people in the center are less saying like, hey, like, this is what I think about this, this, and that. And my job is to get everyone to think this, this, and that. My job is to pretend I'm neutral when I'm not. Instead, it's to say, hey, how can we take a step back, look at the different coalitions and constituencies and look at what everyone's actually saying? And how can we actually work to build something coherent from all of that? Because that is what actual centrism, that's what actual moderation is. And I think that that's the real goal of people uh, who are frankly ambitious this decade. And there's this weird situation where it seems in the short term, it's better off to pick your little tribe and do big things there. But I think in the longer term, it's going to be those figures who could build something coherent out of what Amy Klobuchar is saying and out of, out of what Josh Hawley is saying, out of what Bernie Sanders is saying, especially as more and more people don't identify with either political party. Yeah, um, I have several stray thoughts out of, out of what you said. First of all, um, yeah, in regarding bubbles and the left having all the cultural power, you know, it's there's this phenomenon of, uh, you know, the Aspen Institute. Sorry to pick on you, Aspen Institute, but, you know, like we're going to have an event and we're going to have four speakers and there's going to be like three hard left people and David Brooks. So it's balanced. Yeah. I knew you were going to um, say David. I, I, in my head, I had David Brooks in my head. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't like to actually uh, David Brooks gets a raft of um, of of poop thrown at him. And I don't think that's entirely deserved. I, he's the smart guy. I like, he, I, 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 for what he is, I like David Brooks. But he's lot. this totem. He's this lightning rod. I mean, it's kind of hard to be in the middle. I, I, I suppose that you get attacked from all sides. Put that aside. Um, what I do see is I'm just very discouraged because um, so 
you talk about where, you know, conservatives go to be heard and you talk about the issues that they latch on to. So they end up latching on to masks. Um, and if you're like me and, and you now feel alienated from that side, I find it hard to have empathy. I try. You are better. You're keyed into, you empathize more than I do. And you look at it and you see that next level and you say, okay, this may be a superficial issue, but there's this underlying feeling of being out of power. And I get that, but I end up really, and, and I'm trying, there are people who are not trying and they just latch onto the, the simple, they look at the superficial and they just look, look, the right's gone crazy. They're looking at, you know, they're, they're latching onto these dumb issues. We don't have to listen to them. And that's not actually a, an entirely crazy reaction either. Like people don't owe you a whole lot in this world. So if you latch onto superficial issues, don't be surprised when people assume you're superficial. Yep. Um, so where, where do they, where do they go with that? I mean, um, I am key to, I try to read widely, for instance, and my view is that the right, really like the largest speakers are latching onto those issues. They're playing to the base. Um, so to throw a actually pretty simple question at you potentially, like where do you go right now for the people who are giving smart commentary on the right side of things who are taking that feeling of being out of power and doing something constructive with it. Cause I see a lot of the talk about the superficial on the one hand. And then I also see a lot of talk of like, well, we just need political power. No, I'm sorry. You had political power in 2016 and we saw where that goes. You, you just actually, you actually accelerated your slide out of all the institutions. I was in a debate. I actually showed up at the Republican national lawyers association for an event to talk about, you know, where do we go with big tech? And I, uh, across from me was a pretty prominent right-wing nationalist uh, guy. And he actually started an answer with, I've said this on the podcast before, by the way. Um, so sorry to repeat myself, but um, well, when we win back power in 2024, dot, 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 and off went his answer. And I'm just like, that is so unhelpful. It, it, have it, you, political power is the, it's the like, if all you have is a, is a hammer, Everything looks like a nail. Um, the only thing Republicans can see a path toward is political power. So their whole plan is let's get that. And then everything flows from there. I'm sorry. If you have power in Washington, you're not going to make change at a low level anywhere. You're not like, just to take one example, like faculties at universities are not going to shift in your ideological direction because you have power in Washington. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Um, so to tie, I kept drifting after my question, who's, who's coming up with solutions? Where do, where do I look to read things so that I don't just think that everybody on the right is uh, latching on to, uh, masks. Yeah. I want to, I want to answer the last thing you just said, actually, because I think it's very helpful because I want to speak to the power question because whenever you get in debates with, um, right populists, they have this term, they have this phrasing of the right, you specifically, um, isn't willing to use power and is ultimately just content to be the Washington generals, if this is you know, the hard globe globetrotters of this system. And that is the problem. When actually, if you look at these issues, the problem is that there actually isn't a coherent actual theory of solving the problems they're discussing. 
So once again, if you talk to most right populists, I've talked to these people, they will say things, and these are, prom- I'm like not naming names, obviously, but these are prominent people who will tell you, oh, the project is breaking up big tech companies to punish them for being against the right. Or the project is breaking up Google to punish them without being able to answer, hey, so Susan Wojcicki is spun off from Google. You realize she takes the same exact editorial stand on content moderation she was taking before. Because once again, we kind of saw this during the AWS debate after after the parlor debacle happened where people were like, oh, you know, the solution here is to break up Amazon break off um, um, AWS and Amazon, because this is all about Jeff Bezos and his power. When I think it's very useful, I actually work at a tech company. I'm like, guys, you don't understand, because I know none of these people actually know tech founders who are small. Like They know the big names, but I know for a fact the right populists we're talking about are not spending time with the 20-somethings who are going to build the next things that we're going to talk about in five, six years from now. None of those people would would, would host Trump either. There isn't a single startup outside of specific startups like Rumble and Parler that were ineffectively trying to market themselves to a right audience who would host Trump after after January 6th. And once again, the right populists just have this really weak conceptualization of what's happening, which is that they're, they're, the, the people they're trying to declare war on, that's why they have a bad theory of politics. And then I'll get to your answer on media, but this is just a really important point. Um, their theory is that the, their opposition are these places. It's Apple. It's Google. The project is wielding power in 2024 to break them up. Not understanding that the actual thing they're declaring war on is more than half of the country that actually controls every other institution that exists. Because once again, this goes to the danger zone of embracing Trump because they have chosen to embrace a candidate and frankly, a style of rhetoric but by definition is going to tick off and piss off every other part of our society. The biggest mistake Trump and Steve Bannon, all these people make is that they think for, they think because they caught the establishment by such surprise in 2016, they are then completely immune from how politics work. So from their perspective, and I know you've seen these people talk, you get the people who say in 2016, the neoliberal post-World War II world order was overthrown. And now these people have to reckon with our arrival. And it's like this blabbering crap that doesn't actually mean anything, but they think means something. It ends in the storm is coming. That's where that logical. Uh, no, it ends there. And then it's just like, hey, like, just so you know, like by talking the way you just talked, a like. Tell Google and Apple and institutions of higher education, like you said, that the neoliberal world order has been overthrown because it most certainly has not been. Um, that's just not true, um, just because you won an election by 70,000 votes. But it just it, it just is totally incorrect with political theory. And I, my real you, uh, an earlier question you asked me was, be a consultant for people who are right populist. And my actual consultancy is, hey, guys, actually spend some time developing an actual theory of tell me how this ends. How does declaring war against every single institution that is not you end in you successfully wielding power for the long term? Many of those institutions of which are the envy of the world, by the way, 
Um, yes, yes, no, and no, and that's no, and, that, and that's 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 a critical thing too, right? Like, I I'm not meaning just to like dunk on like tech companies or higher education, but just 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 tell me how. And their answer is they don't have an actual answer. So my consultancy is like, no, 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 like actually come up with a majoritarian, not super online articulation and theory not and super strategy. Online, I love. Yeah, that. just not, just not super on like, because that's what actually matters there. Um. So to your question of media, look, I mean. My honest answer is that there aren't. So look, I think I think there I think there are folks who are very grounded. Um, so on the right, um, Ross Douthat is great uh, because you know I have plenty of conservative friends who think that Ross is getting increasingly centrist in a way that's really frustrating. And maybe that could be true on an ideological level, but I'd say I like Ross because he's a very clear-eyed thinker, and he doesn't make the mistake that I was critiquing earlier. So Ross is the type of person who is good at the skill of what are people actually saying. Ross would never say, hey, readers, good news. We solved content moderation because a geriatric senator said so, right? Like, right? he would never make that mistake. And that's actually really important. Um, so there aren't many people who impress me. And I think what the biggest pitch for my podcast and what I'm doing is I've done two things that are very important that I think really impede basically anyone's abilities to actually do anything. So point number one, I'm not obsessed with getting clicks. Um, Sagar and I made this joke of like, if we wanted the realignment to get to hundred thousand downloads next week, we'd turn this into the Wuhan Ivernectin lab lake hour. Um, it'd be the <laughs> easiest thing. It'd be the easiest thing in the entire world to get there. Um, instead what we've done is we're like, Hey, like, cause guess what? That, that Shira Franco episode, Facebook, our audience hated it. Um, because they thought we weren't, we, they thought, I appreciate you saying we pushed back because they think we did not push back enough, um, which is just funny how but this is the difficulty of actually like cultivating a broad-based show. Sure. Um, but that episode did not perform as well as our episode on the Wuhan lab leak with Josh Rogan. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if I'll get pushback of like, Mar- you you had a, a right wing, you know, wing nut on the show when when this comes out, to be honest, like that's the level of of separated bubbles i think we have in the world but please go ahead yeah no and and, and it's and and in a certain degree it's kind of a compliment because it actually shows that i'm doing something that no one else is doing which is i'm actually so, so i'm saying a i want to build the hbo of podcasts i don't want to be cbs with csi portland or csi seattle in terms of overstretching a franchise to get to 20 million listeners i really that was a really like you know mid-stage millennial reference that um if, if you have a gen z audience that Joke is it going to make as much sense there? Um, but my, my, my point is, I don't care about clicks and views. I care about quality. Um, and it's really good that, like, frankly, that, you know, we have an economic model where we're, we're housed within Lincoln Network, not Lincoln Project, Lincoln Network. Um, and we received a grant from the Hewitt Foundation to support our work for the next two years. So we don't have to care about advertising or anything like that. So I don't care about views. Um, so number, and number two, I'm not trying to run for office. Because or or to seize power from my own ideological tribe, because the number one thing you just see with everyone is either their mind, either they're dishonest because they're going for views. So they are they're elevating and focusing on topics that aren't truly honest um, to get those views or they are wish casting the world the way they want the world to look like in order to actually seize power themselves. Um, So the version of me that I would not trust, and this is not me, is a version of me that says, listen, Corbin, here's the deal. I've been doing this realignment thing for two years. Populism is the future. Libertarianism is totally irrelevant. 
All we need, like you said, is to get back in power in 2024. And all of the failures of the Trump administration just came down to being unwilling to appoint the right people, aka you should appoint me in 2025. That is what all those people are always saying when they make that really like kind of superficial point um, when they're really saying that. So I think I, I, I really strive to be one of the trustworthy people you're speaking to, because once again, like Ross, I think we have the position where we have to articulate to a really broad-based audience of people. Um, Ross knows he can't be David Brooks because that spot's already filled. So how do I be conservative, but also speak to a majority left audience? The people who could find a way to thread that difficult needle are going to be the people who are incentivized to actually do a decent job at helping you understand things. And for me, that means I'm going to book Shira Frankel and then I'm going to book Josh Hawley, which a lot of people didn't like either. But it's really important that I maintain my audience credibility with those points. Yeah, I'm so glad that you can do that. Um, and you had Eric Weinstein on the sh- on the, the realignment, and he talked about the fact that um, there's not a lot of people in the world who are able to make those kinds of choices. You kind of need to be um, ready to fall on your sword. You, you need to be out there not worrying about... Um, Losing your losing your job. I mean, I think it's 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 risky. I don't want to make it sound. Uh, one thing that gets annoying to me is people saying, um, "Oh, we live in this like it's terrible. It's it's cancel culture. It's totalitarian. Like it's uh, no. We live in a pretty darn free society. Like things are pretty good." But I will say, like you know, you have to be careful what you you say. And I think that may have always been true. But uh, but and so maybe I'm tapping into a, a a more eternal truth. But like there, it takes a certain amount of either stability or courage to be able to do what you're doing. So hats off to you. Thank you. Um, you had Antonio Garcia Martinez on the realignment and you two had an interesting discussion about how we culturally are perhaps having something like our own reformation. Um, in that case, it was the printing press spreading the vernacular Bible and Mark Martin Luther's theses and so on, leading to a Catholic Protestant rift and, you know, ultimately the 30 years war. Um, go look it up if that's confusing to you. I'm sorry, we're not going to rehash it all here. But in our case, it's the Internet. It took 10 minutes. So thank you for it's, saying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in our case, it's the Internet and social media sort of flattening the information period pyramid. Um, you mentioned Walter Cronkite and maybe he was kind of left wing, but like there, at least in that era, is something of a uniform narrative being placed on events. Uh, I don't want to put too much weight on that claim, but there's a kernel of truth to it, I think. Uh, but we have we have rifts here from that flattening that are uh, as yet kind of hard to even describe. Like it's hard to see what's going on when you're in the middle of it. No, like I bet nobody in 1530 was like, "We're going through a reformation right now." Um, I've had Martin Gurry on this show to discuss this stuff. Uh, it's this great deep topic. There's a lot to explore. Um, and I think one theme that you and I have been hitting on it, you know, if there's anything I've learned in the last five years, it's, it's a modicum of Socratic wisdom, meaning like realization that I have no idea. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know where things are going. Like, really, I don't know. Uh, and getting more comfortable with that. Having said that, um, Predict the future. Uh, you know, can you envision some kind of realistic denouement to the sort of uh, online food fights, um, or are we sort of doomed to just keep shouting at each other indefinitely? Is this sort of level of acrimony 
even if it's sort of superficially online and less and less we're seeing it's not just online, it spills into the real world. Um, is this going to be a long-term thing? No. So, well, it depends what your timeline is. So the generic line I'm taking on this is if you're looking for a fun, optimistic policy forward 2020s, you're in for a really, really, really bad time. But because once again, like the whole point of the 30 years war metaphor is there's just this really, there's this terrible period where a bunch of things have to be, have to be sorted out. And there'd be a bunch of politicians and movements and ideas that are just stabbed to death, left by the wayside, whatever. And we should be instead be looking to the 2030s for when a lot of this will be worked out. And the reason why I do not think the acrimony is going to last forever are, are, are two things that I've really, really sort of synced up on. So number one, and this is the optimistic thing. I used to think this was a bad thing. This is actually a good thing. More and more and more people are saying they are fed up with the two-party system and declaring that they're independent. Now, once again, the super the superficial version of that is these people are totally unbiased, don't have a perspective. This, this that's totally like full of crap, right? Like nine times out of ten, if you ask someone who's independent, like they lean one way or they lean the other way. But the thing I'm focusing on is just the label. That label matters because if we're talking about media decentralizing, if we're talking about the technology industry decentralizing, whole other topic, but an important one. So it's also decentralizing are just these political parties. This idea that you want to be forward-facingly the blue tribe or the red tribe. That's going to operationally be true in your life, but people increasingly don't want that to be a thing. So my point here is that the more and more people are less and less interested in petty tribal warfare between two specific, very forward-facing identity-based tribes, the more there's an opportunity to actually coalesce that set of people and actually advocate to them forward-facingly. So the thing that's always funny is whenever you see people center-left try to dunk on people who are um, right populist, so you, you, you always have people try to, junk, to dunk on you know, J.D. Vance, um, who I've had, I've had on the show a couple of times, say, oh, J.D., like this thing you're saying is crazy or this thing you're saying is bad, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why people just don't just turn them and say, hey, man, you just sound like a politician now. And that's really depressing. Like, I actually don't understand why people just do, you know, I think it's jujitsu where you use your opponent's strength again, or maybe it's Aikido, I confuse on martial arts, where you use your opponent's strength against you. I don't know why people don't just turn to tribalist political hacks and just say, hey, like, this is a real bummer what you're saying. Like, oh man, like you just wake up every day and to get power and to become like a governor or a congressman or a president, you just like talk crap about people. Like that's terrible. Like screw that, man. Like I don't want to pick your populist label. I don't want to pick your Democrat label. I just want to, I just want to be people who figure out that's actually going to be the long-term sustainable message for actually bringing together the broader tribe of people that's going to be where it's, what's really interesting. And that's why more and more you're going to see interesting people like Mayor Eric Adams of New York City who are going to be able to bring together unconventional coalitions who aren't going to make as much sense. So Eric Adams is the type of person who could bring conservative Democrats and working class Blacks and Hispanics to actually support his campaign against more traditional progressive Democrats in the New York City mayoral race. You're just going to see more and more people who understand the response in the short term is to lean into your tribe. But if you actually take a step back, you're actually going to realize like, wait a second, there's this bigger audience of people who are exhausted by that, who hate the acrimony 
not going to look for people whose entire frame is going to be moving forward. Now, a, a key thing that I have to say, though, um, because like I'm not talking about this like I'm me running for office level, but I'm talking about this at a, at a podcasting level. The more and more I was focused on us being the type of show that could speak to that audience, the more I realized that I care less and less and less about policy. The less and less the show is about, okay, Corbin, you need to believe that Section 230 needs to look exactly like this. Or you need to think that immigration policy, we should let X number of unskilled immigrants in versus these number of skilled immigrants. I thought that that's the project. That was the start of the show. No, that's actually not it. Like the project is actually, once again, answering the tell me how this ends question, being able to understand the Amy Klobuchar position and the Josh Hawley position, and actually coming up with some synthesis that could actually bring together a real percentage of the country. That's what really matters there. And if you actually look at politicians in our country who've been really great, um, the FDRs, the Lincolns, you realize like, wait a second, none of these people were policy wonks. None of these people ran for office under this really specific policy plank. Instead, I think they had a really good conception of what leadership is and what they actually need to do. Eisenhower is in the same category here too. So it, it, I think people should focus more on the long-term on how can we actually help our society be less fractious? And that's going to necessitate un- more understanding and frankly, less advocacy. Culturally, I mean, obviously, neither you nor I has a crystal ball. Who knows what's going to happen? But Antonio has suggested... And I'm sorry if I don't get his view quite right here, but something along the lines of, you know, the way this is actually going to happen is it's going to be kind of medieval. We're going to all end up living in our little cultural fiefdoms and there will still be the really angry red tribe and the really angry blue tribe. But now there will be like a upset moderate tribe and there will be like a like a Mike Solana, uh, gray team, tech bro um, tribe. I, it sounds like I'm dunking on it. I would love to have Mike Solana on the show, so don't get me wrong. Uh, the, you know, it'll all just, it'll just keep fragmenting and we'll end up in our distinct reality bubbles to, you know, Rene Duresta talks a lot productively about this. And um, I think that's the, that's sort of the bad end. So I like that you put a more positive vision on things. Anyway, this has been fantastic. Um, I, I will help us start to wind down a bit um, by turning to your other podcast. You know, I really want to spend a moment on it. And I'm sorry I didn't mention the third at the outset. But okay. uh, it's very confusing. So I, I, I totally understand. The, the Deep End. Um, the Deep End is really cool. Uh, listeners, I, I, I mean that very genuinely. Um, uh, the Balaji episode I really enjoyed. I thought that was fantastic. Um, and you recently had Delian Asparohov on. I'm so jealous of that. Um, Delian, you're welcome on this show anytime. Um, please just give a shameless plug for that podcast because it's warranted. Yeah, totally. So the plug for the deep end, it's, it's basically, I found myself more and more with the realignment, really getting fascinated by the tech industry and these questions of how does X, Y, and Z thing work. And that always isn't the best fit for what we're really trying to do on the show there. So the deep end was an opportunity at the company I work at OnDeck, which is in the online community building um, feature of higher education space. It was an opportunity to say, hey, let's build a show for people who want to take action either in their startup careers or their personal lives around an issue. So the episode of Demian is, it's about space. It's about, hey, like, what's going on in space right now? The episode of Apology is about like, hey, like, 
what does decentralization look like and what does that mean? Like, what is this idea of the network state that he thinks is going to replace the nation state, which he, to this entire conversation, would say that everything we're saying suggests that the U.S. is probably winding down as a useful construct. So he's interested in the question of what's next. So it's just, hey, let's find an idea and let's just delve really deeply into it with a, a builder, an expert thinker or talker who's thought a lot about it. So I think I think it's just really cool. And if you at all found yourself interested in a very specific issue, I think it's a, the perfect thing to delve into. Like I'm, I'm imagining this world where I'd love to do an episode that's just the 30 years war and really help people understand that. That'd be actually a really useful, really useful thing. Now what I'm thinking about it. probably not a great editorial fit, but that's what we're really getting at. Yeah, I should, um, rather than just leave those hanging. So like Balaji uh, was at uh, Coinbase. Um, I, what, what is he doing right now? Do you remember? Yeah, so he um, he's just doing a lot of thought leadership. Um, he um, does a lot of writing. He does something called 1729, which is an interesting crypto project. Um, he used to be at A16Z. So he, he's just doing a lot of things. He's going on a lot of podcasts. I think he's in, I, I think he's just doing a lot of work to, lay the baseline for the ideologies working on. And, and, and the key thing is that there's a lot of tech people who make a lot of money and then think they have big brain thoughts, but he actually really is a brilliant person. Like whether you disagree, agree with him, it, it helps that he was an academic before he got into tech and before he got his money. Um, so I think it's, I think he's really someone who's just really impressive in that space. Yeah. So he's, um, you know, he's through, he's, I think it's fair to call him without too much uh, cynicism, like a, a visionary. So he's constantly tossing out these thoughts about how the future is going to look. And, you know, the notion of like uh, crypto based, like you get tokens of authority and then leading to like, you know, I don't know, like something like a Wikipedia for solving astrophysics problems kind of stuff. Like he's just constantly throwing off thoughts like that. And then Dalian, who's at Varda, you know, he's trying to basically make factories in space. Um, so I, I feel like those are two sort of indicative episodes of what you're doing on that podcast of really doing deep thinking deep dives with people. You had one on life extension that was interesting. So just great podcast. Um, and I recommend it. Thank you. Marshall, this has been great fun. Uh, before I let you go, uh, please tell us about, you know, what else is tap on tap for you as if there could be more than like you're doing so much, but, um, where other, you know, so three podcasts, anywhere else your listeners might, uh, find you, you know, feel free to plug your upcoming realignment event in Miami, you know, whatever is coming up as you make your way in the world, go for it. Yeah. So we are, Saga and I are hosting a realignment conference in Miami. Um, we're actually filled up on slots right now, but we'll put a lot of stuff out there. Um, yeah, just go, go check out, um, go check out the realignment podcast. There's a lot of, we have a lot of like different things and we're working to step things up over the next few months. And yeah, and this on a broader level, I do three podcasts. So I, I do a lot of these conversations and I'm just really excited for the foreseeable future to just keep putting these reps in. I, I love doing this because I basically get paid to just think about things by asking people questions. Um, I was really not good at college. Um, so this is, I basically think of this as a redo of what academia could have been for me um, in a more friendly to martial world. So it's a really exciting thing to do this. And thanks to you, everyone. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Thank you for coming on to this podcast, Marshall, as a guest. It's been wonderful. Uh, I'm Corbin Barthold. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed.
nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.